right, welcome back into the Nick Bob Podcast. We have a fantastic episode on deck. He's one of my favorite podcast guests outside of Bo Root. This guy, Dirk Chatlin of the Omaha World Herald, has to has to be second in most podcast appearances. Uh, he's just he's like the ideal podcast guest. You just turn on the mics, you hit record, and you roll. He can talk about anything and everything. I just I love having this guy on and. Full disclosure, uh, so w- just so people have some context, like literally when I, I called Dirk, oftentimes we just get like right into stuff. And so Dirk knew that I was coming from a doctor's appointment with my wife because, uh, you know, we announced it on on social media and all that stuff, but I'm not sure if I've made the formal announcement on uh, on the podcast that uh, my wife and I, Kim, are expecting our third child. A little baby boy is going to be born, uh, gosh, here, we're taping this on Thursday, May 5th. Uh, due date is right around May 19th, May 20th in that area. So we are getting close to uh, to the birth of my third child. Got Mava, got Mac, and we got the the little third little dude on, uh, I guess Mava's a girl, Mac is a boy, and then a second little boy coming on, uh, on in just a couple of weeks. So uh, when, when I... The, the conversation, I just wanted to, because I wanted to just play it as it was, but Dirk immediately asked me about my appointment, and, you know, we immediately get into baby talks. So I wanted to give just some frame of reference of what we are discussing when we kind of jump right into it. So let's jump into said conversation. Here is yours truly and my main man, Dirk Chatlin of the Omaha World Herald. Enjoy. Nick. Dirk Chatlin, what's up? How are you doing, sir? I am doing just fine. I appreciate you taking some time once again for me. Yeah, are you? Uh, the appointment went okay. Appointment went okay. Everything is uh, is good. We are things are trending are, are trending in the right direction. Everything everything is smooth so far. But uh, talk to me in like three weeks, and we'll see how smooth things are. <laughs> <laughs> so so mine are. I've got my my first two are three years apart, and then my second and third are a year and a half apart. What what is the gap between your first and third? So okay, so uh, first is six now, uh, so it would be it's it's about four and a half years between my first and second, about four years let's say, and now this is going to be like under two. Okay, that so, that that will be a challenge. Yes, that is what I'm most <laughs> nervous about. Like you know, because certainly we. Uh, you know, we we wanted to not space it out so far between number one and number two, but it ended up being a blessing in disguise. Now that we, you have the baby, like that, you know, my oldest daughter is like, so you can say, "Hey, go get dressed," or "Here's food, sit and eat that." Like while I deal with this, like I'm right. I am nervous about what life is going to look like with two kids both under the age of two. Like, yeah, man. we've got ours are our second and third are eighteen months apart, and man they might as well be twins like it just feels it feels like they're so close i know so i mean that's my that's that's what i'm most uh in terms of like the parenting aspect of it and like the getting through the day-to-day grind aspect of it like that's what that that's what i'm most nervous about and then like every night at bedtime you know usually we just lock up man to man and it's like i you know she'll take one i'll take one and we put them down you know like i Every night I look at my wife after bedtime and I'm like, "How? Explain to me how this works with the third with the third one." I just don't understand how we do it. I don't get it. So, so, so here's the here's the biggest issue, uh, and this is the thing that I don't I didn't fully uh, appreciate. But when when you have two kids, tell me uh, tell me how many battlefronts there are. <laughs> how, 
How many? No, no, seriously. How many battle lines are there? There's one, right? Yes. It's it's child A versus child B. Right. Uh, when you have th- when you go from two to three, you don't go to two battle fronts. You go to three battle fronts because it's child A versus child B, <laughs> child B versus child C, and child A versus child C. So it, the the conflicts actually triple. Oh no. Yeah, I, I, you know what's crazy though? As you say that, I have avoided that battleground. Knock on wood, fingers crossed. Like somehow, and I think this is all because of my now six-year-old daughter is just like the sweetest little thing in the world. There has been no real conflicts between Mac and Mava yet. Like they, she's like, she's, she's like a babysitter almost. Basically, huh? you know, and so. That is man, one you are a blessed man. I know. I know I am. And I and <laughs> and then the other thing too is you know, knock on wood, fingers crossed, like my so our our basically a twenty month old son here. This dude, I think we've talked before how he sleeps in a mountain he was sleeping in a mountain of binkies <laughs> and all that stuff. Like he is dude is top five sleepers. He's a five star sleeper, like wow. incredible sleeper. And I just feel like everything's so we have this like sweet little angel like five six-year-old daughter we have the greatest sleeper like i feel like we're gonna get bart simpson reincarnated <laughs> with this one no sleep crazy terrorizing everything like i'm nervous about this who this, uh, this next little dude's it's gonna all be. part of the it's all part of the experience that's Bart. right that is that is correct but yeah so it, it's uh it's gonna be an, it's yeah because i i've you know, I've talked to a lot of people. Some people have said, oh, the move from one to two is a lot more dramatic than the move from two to three. And then you get some people no. go, no way, man. Like, the move from two to three is way harder than one to two. <laughs> I don't see how it's not the move from two to three. Right. And then when you get to, like, three to four, four to five, at that point, you're just – when you're on the Matt Schick plan, you just – you are you – are, you're, you're, you've blacked out. You don't know what's going on every day. Yeah, like, they're, just, they're just watching each other at that point. Yeah, at that so, point, like, you're like, ah, they're fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're doing but, okay. But, but I, I will say the, the tell is when you, you're going to go from, like, two podcasts a week to, like, one podcast per month. So. <laughs> I know. I don't know how – I don't know how I'm going to – I don't know. I need to work up a bunch. I don't know if you ever have this stuff where you work up a bunch of, like, evergreen columns or evergreen stories and you got them, like, <laughs> stored away. I need to – like I need to put in the can like twenty five evergreen podcasts that could be played at any time to just like save up so I can just like immerse myself into the craziness that'll be my life here. And now, do you weeks. have a responsibility to like have so many per you know? Yes. Per yes. You do. Yeah. Shouts okay. out to the advertisers for that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I have to deliver a certain amount. You know. Uh, I don't know if it's like I'd have to look at the fine print. You know, it's you know technically I'm doing two pods a week. Now I can do more, right? Like if I want to. Um, but I think it's more about the the total at the end of the month. I think that's kind of okay. what things how things are kind of packaged, if you will. So yeah, like technically, like it's not one of those things I can be like, ah, nah, we're not gonna do any for a while. I got, here, I got, know? I got nothing this week. <laughs> I got, I got nothing. That's one of the things that I I feel like is it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Now, what is like? How does that work for your world? Like, because you, you know, Baylor Shireman, who we're going to talk about here in a second, like he commits. That sparks a column. But if he wouldn't have committed, there maybe wouldn't have been a column. Do you have like a no. Dirk Chatlin has to deliver X amount of columns, whatever? Explain to me how your no. that works for you. My role is my role is somewhat unusual. Um, 
there's usually an assumption that I'm working on something bigger. So I don't, I don't have a lot of the day-to-day stuff. Uh, and you know, sometimes I, sometimes I'm very productive and prolific and sometimes I'm not as much. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful from that standpoint. I mean, usually I've been able to deliver on kind of the bigger stuff where they, they don't give me too much grief about, you know, Hey, you only had three stories this month or whatever. So, um, now I don't, I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if that's going to go on forever. I mean, it's at some point, um, you know, if I took three months off, I think somebody would probably notice. <laughs> right. You could just tell them. Do you ever just be like, yeah, yeah, no, I got, I got something I'm cooking up here, really. And then they had that thing go. Like, ah, it didn't lead to anything. It wasn't It wasn't worth it. Yeah, you know? it fell like, through. We, we had a source back out at the last minute. No, but I like that. Like, that's the perfect spot. It's one of the reasons that I prefer podcasting. And I never want to, like, disparage sports talk radio. Like, they're, they're, it it's it has its place. It has value. I, I learned a lot and enjoyed my time doing it. But one of the things that I've kind of learned is, like, you know, I'll do – a Husker football game will happen. I'll do 60 minutes recapping it with Bo Rude. And that – we've covered everything that you probably need to cover for, for what would need to be filled into five days of radio. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I think, I think that's one of the things that you're in a good spot of, like, you know, Sh- Baylor Shireman commits you f- to Creighton. You feel like, oh, I got to – I now I – like, your creative juices are flowing. You want to get something out there rather than feeling like, well, I got to churn out something here. I better just yeah, go no, that's, push something. That's, that's basically why I quit doing the blog stuff is because yes. I just felt like I was, you know, I would sit at the computer and I'd be like, well, I have to, I, I have to have something to say about yes. this. Yes. You know? And it's like, I actually, wait a second. I don't have anything to say about this. That's right. Um, so I, that's the hard part about radio is it's like, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's, uh, a busy news day or a quiet news day, you still have to fill the fill right. the same amount of time, and right. that's that. I I got tired of doing that with I, the blog. So did I. I mean, that's a, the reality is I got a little bit fatigued of that with radio, where it was like, no matter what, you know, for me, my show started at eleven. It was like eleven o'clock is coming, and three hours are gonna get filled, and you can get yourself into trouble with that because you either you you'll make something a story that doesn't really need to be a story. Or I'll never. I would never say I. I disingenuously had a had an opinion on something that I didn't believe. But I'd maybe, I don't know, lean into that opinion a little bit more than I really fully felt because I had to. I had to fill time, you know. And that's yeah. that's that's where I think like some of the stuff where, uh, you know, whether it's first take or Skip and Shannon, like they get themselves into trouble because it's like. They got to fill time, and you better have like a strong opinion on so. Like, like last night, you the we're recording this on a Thursday. You can't be like, well, you know, the Suns are up two zero. I don't know. We'll see what happens in Game Three. That's not a right. good segment on first take. You know what I mean? Like, no. you have to have something. No, that's and you're really in a vulnerable spot when you feel like you have to say something that you don't really, you know, right. you don't have a strong opinion on. Uh, like you said, that's where you get in trouble. Um, I, I will say though, I think it helps a ton just in my experience, um, you know, co-hosting radio shows over the years. It does help a ton when you have a, a co-host, totally. uh, you know, like you can, you can roll through three hours with a co-host, you know, when absolutely nothing is going on. Yes. And when you're doing it by yourself, you are much more, 
uh, you know, re- to, reliant yeah, on the right, news. Right, 1,000%. Well, speaking of the news, uh, you did write about Baylor Shireman, who uh, the Aurora native, South Dakota State Jackrabbit, went into the transfer portal, and he is headed to Creighton. And, you know, for me, like, I thought this entire time during this offseason, I was going to be really interested to see how Coach McDermott and the staff approached adding and taking a transfers because I did kind of feel like Creighton needed to be really selective and careful with who a, who they added to this team. Like I felt like the, a player either needed to be a too good to pass up or b really, really, really fit the style of play, this team, a need, all those things. And Baylor Shireman effectively checks both those boxes in my opinion. Yep. No, I, I agree completely, Nick. I mean, I, when when he made himself well, even before he made himself available in the portal, I think I made a comment, you know, like in late March, like it would be really interesting to see what he was going to do, because you know he he was obviously going to have some opportunities. Um, I wasn't thinking so much about the NBA. I was thinking more like you know a promotion to a bigger conference, and and one of the reasons I felt that way is just because of he just fits so many places, so many types of programs, so many types of teams. I mean, he could he could go to Nebraska uh, into a rebuilding situation and be a really good fit. I think he could go to Creighton. He could go to you know Duke and be a really good fit at a place like that. Uh, I just think you know the in search for a metaphor. You know, he's he just fills almost any gap. I mean, he he's the type of guy that if he was, uh, you know, if there were a bunch of cracks on the sidewalk, I mean, he's he's the pitcher of water that you pour on the sidewalk and, and the water fills every gap. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of how I feel about Baylor. And I'm really partial to his versatility, to his passing. I mean, I think oh. I love I love great passers, yes. um, especially at the college level. And I think he he does that really well. I think he's going to be you know, extremely motivated to, uh, to make it work, to fit in really well. I mean, obviously the, the coaching staff does a great job from, from a, from a player development standpoint. And so I think he'll get better in some ways. Uh, I just think it's a phenomenal fit for Creighton. He's better in leadership on a team that pr- probably needs a little bit of that. Um, you know, he's just, He's just almost tailor-made, I think, for what this Creighton team needs right now going into a year where the expectations are going to be really, really high. So yeah. um, I think he would have been, he would have fit almost anywhere he went, including, you know, the very, very top player, you know, top teams in the country, North Carolina, Gonzaga, et cetera. Uh, but I think, you know, he'll, he'll be a huge hit at Creighton. Um, and, you know, I mean, he's, he fits, um, he, he, they they give him what he needs too. You know that's what I like about it is, um, you know he's he's obviously going to help them, but I think they're going to help him because right. their their style of play, especially, uh, I think is just going to bring out the best in him. Yeah, I just like I really try to close my eyes and picture a packed CHI Health Center next year, and like think of how many guys they have that can push in the fast break. How many guys can make a play for somebody else? Like, it is, you know, because I like your point on how he can be a lot of different things. Like, most players only know how to make an impact in one way, and most of that is shooting and scoring. Like, I can see a game where Shireman takes two shots and 
dominates the game. Like I'm talking yep. completely dominates the game. And then the next game, I could see Baylor Shireman have 28, take 18 shots. And like that's those are the kinds of players that are that you don't find everywhere that I am just I am so excited to see what it really when it really gets on the court and they're all on the floor together, what it all looks like. Well, and, and I know you've seen him play. Uh, I've seen him play a lot, especially back in high school. And he, he just, he loves the big stage. He loves the big moment. Uh, you know, he's gonna, he's just gonna totally embrace, I think 18,000 people in the stands. Oh. Uh, you know, that part is, is really going to suit him to a T also. So, yes. um, you know, if, if you were drawing up a, a player, in my opinion, to, to sort of personify the Creighton era over the last 10 years, basically since Greg McDermott decided to, to change the program uh, in the spring of 2010 or 2011, uh, I, I, you know, Baylor Shireman is, is what I would draw up. Right. You know, it's, it's a guy who can play fast, who can shoot, who can pass, uh, who can play lots of different positions. Um, you know, it's just he's sort of the Creighton Blue Jay that never became a Creighton Blue Jay. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that is really cool to see because, you know, he's, a, he's such a talent. It would have been a missed opportunity in my opinion, even if he'd gone to the NBA, um, it would have been a bit of a missed opportunity, you know, to see what he could have done at a big time power five program. And, and he's going to get that chance barring something, uh, popping up in the NBA draft, which, which obviously is still, is still never possible. Know. Right. Right. But, but I, I do think the more he, sort of uh, gets accustomed to being a Creighton Blue Jay, the more he's going to get excited about that. The Dick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella. Won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that bottom line energy efficiency matters and making your home more comfortable and Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency check them out online PellaOmaha.com that's PellaOmaha.com yeah I had someone ask me and th- listen you can get yourself into trouble with this stuff I we just saw the NFL draft and you see it in the NBA draft when people do player comparisons and it's, it's you know it's some like Hall of Famer, you know what I mean? Like Tyler Hero, it's like, well, he's Reggie Miller and Ray Allen, you know, and you're like, well, wait a minute, this is the greatest player of all time. But like, I've told people like, and this is probably because there's, I'm about to compare him to two white guys, but like, he's kind of if Mitch Ballock and Grant Gibbs went into a lab and like had a baby. (laughs) Now he's not, I mean, I know that you would think like, oh my God, he's the greatest player of all time, but he's kind of like, he's kind of Mitch Ballock-ish in like his range and his like, he'll cut your heart out with a, with the confidence to take a crazy three, but then he's Gibbs ish and he's got some kind of F you to him, you know, and and he's a, he's got elite feel elite passing. Like that would be my, like if we're only going the former Creighton blue Jay comparison route, like he's Ballock and Gibbs meshed into one. Yeah. And he's, he's a good, he's a really good athlete. I mean, you know, he's, 
Um, I mean, he's not gonna, he's, he's probably not going to dunk on you, but he's, he's a really versatile athlete. I mean, he's the type of guy that if you, if you got into a late game situation, uh, he could totally play small ball four. uh, he could also play point guard. I mean, he's just, you know, and Creighton's got several other guys like that. I mean, I think they're going to have a lot of fun, you know, uh, just figuring out what different lineups they can use, how they can utilize different players. I mean, they could put Alexander on the ball. They could put him off the ball. They could put Shireman on the ball, off the ball. Uh, you know, they could use Kalkbrenner. They could sit Kalkbrenner. Uh, you know, there's just lots of different ways that Creighton can play. And, and that's always been one of their strengths anyway, but I think this might be one of their most versatile teams. Yeah. Well, and I think, one, not to get too in the weeds with like matchups as an X's and O's and stuff like that, but like there's a one of the things that I think that'll be good this year is when you have Kaluma at the four. There's a big difference between the opposing team's three man or wing guarding you and the other team's four man guarding you. And I yeah. I just think like all these teams when they play Creighton right now, between Shireman or Kaluma, there's going to be a guy that's guarding one of those two guys that isn't that is a little yeah like I even think now I don't know if Sean Miller will do this but like Xavier tried to play Fremantle and Nunji together now how are Fremantle and Nunji one of those guys is gonna have to hard guard Baylor Shireman or Arthur Kaluma like right and that's a disaster and I just think like and you even said it you could I could see Greg McDermott going you know what looked pretty good against Kansas was Kaluma at the five Maybe right. we go Golden State Warrior esque and go. Let's see what ha- let's put Kaluma at the five, Shireman at the four. You know, put, and then pick your three other guards you want to throw in there and play it for a spurt just to kind of f you up a little bit. There's yep. just a lot it, there. You know, the thing that I like the most, and all, there's all the tangible matchup stuff, the versa, the versatility. I mean, there's obviously uh, Creighton's got a lot of skill that I think is is probably you know, is, is going to rank with among the best teams in the country, just in terms of skill. But, but the thing that I like most about the addition is uh, he's just got, he's going to have that swagger that I think this team is going to need to deal with, you know, the expectations. I mean, it's, um, you know, Creighton's had some really good teams that had high expectations. And when you get 18,000 people in the arena, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be a ton of excitement, but I think he, he just sort of infuses those younger guys with a sense of confidence, urgency, calmness. Uh, he's he's not going to be afraid of the moment. And I think that that's really going to help a program that is making a shift from being, you know, preseason number eight in the Big East standings to probably preseason number one next year. You know, and that's that's a hard jump to make. I mean, you you know, they were, they were three minutes away from losing to San Diego state and two, and two days later, they almost beat Kansas and everybody was freaking out, you know, like, wow, this, this group is really something. Uh, I think, you know, obviously they're going to develop naturally, but I do think that they will benefit greatly from having a fourth year player who's played a ton of basketball, who's carried a lot of responsibility and who just has this, as you said, just kind of an FU attitude uh, that I, that I think will really benefit this group. Yes. I mean, I think you, you just kind of go down the line, like Creighton needed not only because of Doug's ability, but Doug and Grant Gibbs as they made their maiden voyage in the big East. Those are two guys that would step right up, you know, just picture like a, 
street alley street fight. Like Doug and Gibbs are going to be the first two to step up to Marquette, to Villanova, yep. and go, all right, let's do it. You know, same thing even with Maurice Watson. Maurice Watson, as Creighton was then really trying to like find their footing in the Big East, Maurice had no problem being the guy to lead the charge. I thought Zegarowski had a little bit of that in him. This team, you know, Kalkbrenner, a little more of a nice guy, like, you know, uh, Trey Alexander, like those guys, Nemhard, like those, don't get me wrong, those guys are have have some some fire in their belly, but Shireman, Shireman's definitely got that to him. And you need as like the intangible personality qualities matter on a team. And I think Shireman fills those gaps really well too. Well, and, and Nick, especially when you go from being the, the hunter to the hunted, right? Right. Uh, because, because starting next year, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get everybody's best shot. Uh, everybody's going to know that you're, you know, preseason number eight or 12 or whatever in the, in the country and that you're the, the Big East favorite or co-favorite or however you want to classify them. And I think it's just different when, when you're sort of the target. Uh, and I, and I think he will benefit them greatly from that standpoint, because, you know, while he's never been, he's never played at Villanova or he's never, you know, played at Xavier. Uh, he has, he has carried a ton of responsibility. And I think he's got, just this natural leadership um, that that you saw, frankly, as a as a high school quarterback, uh, that that will translate very well to being a fourth year player at a big time college basketball program. Yeah, and I, and I think there's something to even look at a guy like Ryan Hawkins. He he was a winner. He won, yep. and I think that it doesn't guarantee you that the next spot you will win, but there was just an expectation. That like you could, t- I remember talking to Hawkins after games, and there'd be some big comeback or something like that. You could tell he was like, "Well, I've always won, and I expect to win, so I'm not going to be surprised." I, you think I'm surprised that we won? And like right. ba- Baylor Shireman just went thirty and five and eighteen and zero in the Summit League. And I get it; you can poo-poo the Summit League. I get it; it is not the Big East. But to Baylor Shireman, Baylor Shireman expects to win every game that he steps on the floor and there's a that's a real thing to me too. Yep, it is. It is. And and I think that you know, th- that's why I mean I I don't want to go too overboard here, but but I I do this, you know, I do this giving it some thought. I mean, I I think I I really think this Creighton team, you know, with all the pieces, um and, you know, and we can we'll have 6 months to talk about this, right. but but to me, this this has a chance to be the best Creighton team that we've ever seen. You know, since certainly since the the early early to mid seventies. I mean, I, you know, as as good as as good as Doug's team was, as good as the team was the last couple of years, and you know, the Sweet Sixteen team. Uh, I just look at how the pieces fit together, and I just don't see very many weaknesses, Nick. I mean, they got to stay healthy. That's yep. always the X, that's always the X factor with Creighton, and and you know, we don't even need to say that part. Uh, but, but man, I just look at how these pieces fit together and how many of them there are. And it's like, yeah, I, I, Nick, I think it's, I think it could be the best Creighton team that we've ever seen. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not going to push back on that. And even, and I don't think he would remind me saying this. I won't go into everything that he, I talked about. I talked to coach McDermott two nights ago and we were talking about the team and all this stuff. And one, and one of the things he said, he goes, you know what I like? He goes, there's a chance we're going to bring two experienced guards off the bench in yep. Sharif Mitchell 
and Francisco Farabello, the TCU transfer. Like, that guy, he's got an international experience. He's played in the NCAA tournament. Like, it's it's one thing. It's nice when you go to your bench and you're not bringing in a, a freshman. You know, like, they could be bringing in, like, two guys that have played in the NCAA tournament. Like, Sharif Mitchell played against Gonzaga, the undefeated Gonzaga team. You know, like, like you can poo-poo that, but... I mean, it, so I, I'm with you, man. Like, I, the one thing I was thinking about, too, is uh, as a former in-state recruit, there is a part of me that loves that Shireman and even Sam Gr- uh, Griesel, to an extent, they didn't get an offer from Nebraska or Creighton. They went out of state, killed it, and now they have Nebraska and Creighton, you know, all over them to, to come back. Like, as someone that, like, I kind of lived that, like, I really – there is a part of me that enjoys – that Baylor Shireman and Sam Griesel get, they get calls like, oh, now, now, now you're on me. You know, like I kind of enjoy that. Yeah. And you know, I mean, they were good the last couple of years. Um, and, and obviously Shireman especially, but, but I feel like, and I'm not, I'm not pinning blame on Creighton and Nebraska because it's, I think it's representative of, of sort of how the theme has been forever. But, but it's like, man, I wish, I wish programs, you know, I wish the big time programs didn't, make them prove it for three years in the summit league before they, you know, before they, before they gave them a shot or before they pursued them. It's like, um, I don't know. It it, it just feels like the expectation or the standard is too, is too high for local Nebraska kids still. And maybe, you know, maybe Salas and Hepburn are going to change that. Uh, but it it just feels like the the Nebraska kids never get the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's like, they got to go prove it somewhere else first. And, you know, there were some, there were some unusual circumstances. I mean, Shireman, he admitted, uh, you know, fall of junior year, which is really early for for a mid-major program. Um, and, and I haven't asked him if he regrets that at all, but, uh, but so, you know, he might've gone a little bit higher had, had he waited it out. But, but I just feel like it's just frustrating to me, you know, that we make these guys, you know, go, go make the all summit league team before we think that they can play at a high major level. Well, and I think you and I were texting a, a week or two ago and like, I also think there's, there's a part of, and and we don't need to, this is, it could be a whole nother podcast about local recruiting, all that stuff. Like, but to me, if you're going to miss, like. If you're going to take a chance, I should say, if you're going to take a chance on a kid, because there are some recruits you bring in that are kind of, no one's a sure thing, but like there are guys that are like, you know, that guy's going to come in and make an impact. There are other guys you don't know, like no disrespect to like a guy, like instead of taking a chance on Deshaun Burke, take a chance on Baylor Shireman. Right. You know, like if you're going to take a, if you're going to roll the dice on someone, roll the dice on the in-state kid and, you know, you say maybe Hepburn and Salas will change it. Like, to me, I thought there was a chance that, that you know, Antoine Young and Josh Jones and Kyrie Thomas and Justin Patton would change it. And it kind right. of hasn't. And so I don't know what, what it really is. But, man, there's a lot of Nebraska guys out there, basketball-wise, really have gone to other places and have played really, really well. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even mentioned Mike Dom, another South Dakota State guy. Yeah. I mean, he was, you know, uh, when I watched him senior year of high school – if, if you would have told me he was going to score 3000 career points in college, I would have laughed at you. Uh, but, but it's, you know, again, it goes back to this. We sort of have this natural instinct. I think it's probably because of geography and the, the, the relatively isolated nature of our state that we, that we just assume that there's, that there's more out there. You know, there's an inferiority complex here that I think extends to, 
uh, to college coaching staffs and their evaluations of Nebraska players. And, and that is changing a little bit. But I think part of the problem is, and this, this is true of football too, when a local kid doesn't make it, it sort of stigmatizes every other local kid, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, if I take a kid from Arkansas or Louisiana or Oregon and he doesn't pan out, I don't, I don't say, well, there's proof that, that out of state kids can't play here. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, right. uh, but when a local kid doesn't pan out and this has been especially true at Nebraska, I think, uh, there there's, it sort of, uh, you know, stains every other local kid. And, and that, that is troubling to me. Cause it's like, uh, you know, just because, uh, this, this kid from Bellevue West doesn't make it doesn't mean that the next kid from Bellevue West isn't going to make it. Right. Yeah. No, you're, you're totally right. And you know, the other thing you and I were texting about is just the importance of like a blazed trail where when someone in state has gone to Nebraska and had success, it makes it a lot easier for someone, the next person to follow that trail. I think that's one of the reasons, like I think Josh Dotzler leads to Antoine Young, which leads to Josh Jones, which leads to Kyrie Thomas, which leads to Justin Patton, which, you know, like there's a very real thing. Like I, I know I probably, I would have done it anyways, but on some weird level, the fact that Jimmy Motes was at Creighton made me feel better about going to Creighton. I'm like, well, I know Jimmy. I've been around Jimmy my whole life. Jimmy's there. Jimmy's playing. I can go do what Jimmy did. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think that that's also something that is is it that is in an, in an interesting place local recruiting-wise, both for football and basketball. Yeah, and I think it's really hurt Nebraska football. I mean, they just, you know, they haven't had – they haven't had enough success stories in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, especially out of the Omaha market that guys have gone down there and, and killed it. And as a result, I think it's harder for um, maybe not necessarily hard for Omaha guys to envision themselves succeeding down there, but it's just, it's different when you see it, like you just said, with a guy that you grew up with, uh, you know, when you see an all big 10 player who, who went to your high school, for instance, that has an impact. And, and I think Nebraska has really suffered uh, over the last, you know, probably 20 years, but specifically the last decade where they just haven't had enough local success stories. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that part really has to change. Um, it obviously helps. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation where, you know, does does the local kid or the local flavor uh, produce the success or does the success produce the local flavor? I think it's it's a little bit of a, of a both, you know, but, but I think Nebraska, you know, has really suffered from the fact that they just haven't had enough success stories locally. And like you said, it does, it does impact the the pipeline. So uh, this last, I want to talk about the NIL transfer portal stuff real quick. I mean, this last week or so seems like things have really gone up a level with the craziness of it all. And even just kind of the, the rhetoric and narrative surrounding how we talk about it. Like I, you know, I've always kind of felt like what's fair and what's right for the players or for the situation might not be what's best for the entire situation. And the thing that's hard is, and I think I've heard you say, it's like the problem is that nobody's looking out for the overall sport because seemingly nobody is in charge right now. Like, I don't even know. Say you you're you know you want to speak to the manager. The the college sports is a restaurant, and you want to speak to them. I want to speak to the manager. Who I don't even know who. Like, do you call the NCAA? Well, Mark Emmert's leaving, and it feels like they're a toothless beast right now to a certain extent. Like, I don't even know who's in charge right now. 
nobody knows who's in charge. Nobody knows who's in charge. If if this NIL thing would have come out last summer and there would have actually been a threat of enforcement or accountability, uh, schools would have handled it differently. Schools had absolutely no fear. Boosters had no fear. Coaches had no fear. Uh, and so, you know, it was basically anarchy for the last 10 months. And, and it was it was anarchy for for five years before that. I mean, Kansas University is still waiting to be punished by the NCAA <laughs> right? uh, for, for, for basketball violations that happened like five years ago or longer. Maybe longer. Um, nobody's afraid of anything. I mean, Sean Miller was was coaching at Arizona. Will Wade was coaching at LSU long after they were deemed uh, cheaters. I mean, it's just what what as a booster at Auburn University, what would make you have any fear whatsoever of consequences of any of your actions? So uh, I think the problem starts there. It goes back, you know, obviously before that, I think the NCAA missed opportunities along the way to modernize, to, you know, to evolve with the times, to to recognize that a, you know, a $500 million SEC contract with, with CBS and ESPN was, was naturally going to make athletes wonder uh, what's in it for me. Uh, I think there were some huge missed opportunities. But now you're at the point where I don't know what the hell you do, Nick, because yeah. you can't really go backwards. Uh, you can sort of try to patch it up and, and put Band-Aids on it. But uh, but I feel I feel like the you know, the dam has been broken and and whatever you do at this point, you know, is is going to uh, is, is going to fail. So I think it probably starts with with actually having someone in charge, you know, putting someone in the NCAA role uh, that actually that actually has some authority. Um, you know, I think the conferences are, are going to have part of that. But I. I think, you know, organizationally, it would help to have to actually have somebody in charge. And, and frankly, I don't know if if having every conference on their own is, is going to do anything. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't know. It's it is a mess. Uh, I feel I feel really bad for <laughs> for everybody, not everybody involved. I mean, it's it's obviously benefited some people, but, um, you know, it's it's just kind of a mess. And, and when you get into um you know, when, when you let the market basically run rampant, uh, you don't always know where that market's going to go. And when we talked about this last summer, I felt like that was the thing that we that we focused on. It's like, well, we don't really know what this is going to look like, you know, and here we are nine to 10 months later. And uh, and and we're seeing we're seeing all American wide receivers and, you know, point guards uh, basically just just go to the highest bidder. And, and I think that's frankly, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We haven't even gotten into the high school stuff. Uh, we haven't, we haven't necessarily seen where this is going to go, but, but uh, it's, you, you really have to, to sort of bite your tongue because it's, it's, it's kind of hard to watch some of this stuff. The Nick Bot podcast is powered by my good friends at Runza. You know, a few things make me more proud than the fact that Runza supports my podcast because as a Nebraskan, I've been a Runza fan my entire life. I lived down the street from a Runza growing up. was a blast to go there as a kid. Sometimes I'd even ride my bike there with my buddies. I vividly remember one of our very first elementary school field trips was to Runza. Everyone loved it. I remember going to Runza in high school for lunches with all my high school friends. And I've told you guys this, one of the happiest days 
at Kansas my freshman year was discovering a Runza in Lawrence, Kansas. It was like finding a little slice of home when I was away from home. And now as an adult, it's great to share runs with my kiddos who absolutely love the deliciousness of Runza. It's a little Runza story from yours truly. And you know what the menu is. Just outstanding, amazing Runza sandwiches. Oh my gosh, a piping hot cheese Runza? Mmm, that sounds good right now. Incredible burgers. The best fries on the planet. The salads are great, especially the Southwest chicken salad, my personal favorite. It's just awesome food. So whether it's lunch, dinner, little snack, doesn't matter. Runza is the spot. You need to go download the mobile app. It's in the app store. You can order ahead, skip the line, plus you can earn rewards as well. Runza makes it all better. My contention from the beginning has always kind of been this with kind of sticking with the whole like looking out for what's best for the overall sport it's like so yes it is fair it's the fair and right thing to let players transfer and be eligible and and it's the fair and right thing I suppose to let them get paid and all that but but my thing is like what's what's fair and right isn't even really fair with what NIL has become meaning at its core for as long as you can remember with college football and college basketball, everyone in college football and college basketball operated under the same structure of how they could build out their roster and acquire players, which was a scholarship. That was pretty much it. Like, at the end of the day, Florida State has a scholarship to offer Dirk Chatlin, and Penn State has, an off- has a scholarship to offer Dirk Chatlin. Sure, I get it. People got paid with bad guys all the time. But I think, first of all, I think it was happening less than a lot of people think. And if you got caught, you were cheating. Like, that was a rule, and you would get caught and punished for that. So, like, now that's not the case. You said it. It's going for everybody's just the highest bidder. Like, if Miami can hand out $800,000 for Nigel Pack. Nigel Pack. Like, how can Miami of Ohio compete with that? Or how can... Really, how can Creighton compete with that? Like, I don't know how you're supposed to make a sport work when when it's there is no structure or guidelines of how everybody can build out their rosters. But it's it's all based on well, it's it's based on on a couple premises. One is lack of organization, and the other one is lack of accountability. It's like if you you know the NCAA. I hate to come back to them because you know they're they're the uh, the pinata in this whole thing, but it's like, if, if they would have done, done their job leading, you know, sort of envisioning where this thing is going, uh, leading schools in that direction, helping it modernize and then holding schools and coaches accountable when they, when they broke the rules, uh, we'd be in a much better place right now. And, and, and instead they basically just said, well, they threw up their hands and they said, well, you know, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna try to stand in its way. And in the absence of standing in its way, uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna see where it goes, and unfortunately, you know, it's it's uh going back to the water analogy. I mean, it's it's water going going yep. down a going down a street at this point. Like, you, there's there's no way to know where it's gonna go. It's it's gonna find gravity, and gravity is is not is not a good place. No. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. It the hard part, Nick. So a couple things. One, I do think the market is going to settle a little bit. I think these boosters are going to realize these collectives are going to realize that, uh, okay, this is probably not, you know, the, the wisest way to spend money. Um, you know, that kid is, is probably not worth $800,000. Um, 
uh, you know, I mean, some of the, some of the big time quarterbacks, you know, might be, might be seven figure guys, but I don't think you're going to see as much of that, you know, five years down the road. Um, but, but the hard part is it's like, uh, you know, it really does influence, I think the consumer's, uh, personal attachment and investment to their programs, right? And how mm-hmm. does that manifest itself going forward? Will you feel the same way about about you know your university or your beloved program when there's this much movement in and out? When there's this much you know of a professional sports feel to it? Uh, I think that is going to be you know increasingly an issue. Is it's like how many of these fans are just going to say, man, I just don't feel it like I did before. I don't feel the same attachment to Casey Thompson that I felt to Adrian Martinez or, uh, or to, you know, Tommy Frazier or Eric Crouch, you know, it's, just, it's not the same. So, uh, I think that's a concern that, that athletic directors certainly feel. And, and I would guess boosters feel it too. Yeah. Cause I mean, I've heard, I heard Bill Self say this recently, Ed Cooley said it like, in the way things are currently constructed, you it's you you're not building a program, you're building teams each year. Like yeah. that that's kind of what it is. I think honestly, I think it was a big factor in why Jay Wright stepped away. Like if you think about how Jay Wright built Villanova, he built Villanova on culture and continuity. Guys waiting their turn, all you know, guys being two, three, four year guys. Like I just don't know if you can do that nowadays. And I think. Jay Wright, also being 60 years old, and he's been to the mountaintop twice, all that stuff. But I also think he sees all this and goes, man, how I want to do it and how I do it, I don't know if you can do it like that. And that's the other side of it with kind of just the 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 way the program is built. But I'm with you. Like, I just don't – I think there's an erosion of kind of the fans' connections with teams, players, et cetera, that I don't know. I, it's hard to quantify what that impact really looks like, but it's a real thing. Now the silver lining is look at North Carolina. They're bringing everybody back. Exactly. You know? Right. And, and they're doing, and they're doing it, I think in part because there's financial opportunities totally. that, that formally didn't exist five years ago. Right. So I, th- there is, there, there are, are positive linings. Yes. There are silver linings to this, yes. you know, and I think you got to be careful not to generalize too much with all this stuff. You know, I mean, right. it's, we can, gen- I can generalize and, and take a whack at the NCAA. I mean, that's an easy target, but but all of the consequences and manifestations of this are are not yet clear. And I think, uh, you know, that's that's the hard part is it's like just when you think you've kind of got a handle on it, it it looks a little bit different a month down the road. A couple more things I want to bounce around and we'll get you out of here, Dirk. I think it's kind of amazing and telling that like the NCAA handed down punishment to Nebraska football, to Nebraska football's program, Nebraska's program, uh, for illegal use of analysts on the field and all that. And we've, I mean, we're 30 minutes into a conversation. I haven't even talked about it. Like, I suppose I got to ask you, is it nothing to you? Is it something to you? Like I, maybe it's telling that I haven't asked you, like how help me put it into perspective. Cause I saw it and kind of went, eh. Yeah, it's, it's an A. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I, you know, you hate to say that about a school that was, that was uh defying NCA rules, but, uh, on the other hand, you look at everything else going on right now, including their win loss record. And I just, I have a hard time getting too fired up about it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's inexplainable how, how poor they were on special teams, uh, you know, some of the coaching stuff, but 
you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, this doesn't, this doesn't register real high on the concern level. Yeah. I don't think. Um, you know, I don't think you and I are, you know what, of- you know, what does, re- you know, what does register the fact that I look at the roster and say, uh, where are they better than they were a year ago? Ooh, okay. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's dig into that. Cause I, I, I wrote down, like, do you have any feel or read on next year for Nebraska? Like, I, I've, I'm with you in that, like, the one thing I feel fairly confident in saying is I don't think they're going to be as good as they were on the defensive side of the ball. And But but what's weird is did they did they upgrade at every coaching – did every coaching change be an – is that an upgrade? And did, did they upgrade at quarterback? Like, and if those two things are true, maybe that does lead to seven wins. I don't know. What do you, what yeah, do you think? I, I think you got to be – you know, this is where we have to recognize, um, you know, that, that the off season Kool-Aid is, uh, you know, is tempting because, you know, I, yes, I think Nebraska upgraded at, at those coaching spots, but we don't have any evidence to back that up. Right. Right. You know? And so, yes, while I, I think that Nebraska probably upgraded at quarterback or at least stabilized there, uh, I don't have the evidence to back that up. So, I think you have to work with what you know, and and what we know is that Nebraska lost a lot of its best players. Uh, We also know that Nebraska's schedule is going to be easier than it was. Um, So I think those two things probably kind of counteract each other. You know, I think Nebraska is going to win more close games just because they can't possibly lose as many close (laughs) games as they lost last year. Um, But I I, I do look at the roster, and I'm concerned because it's like, man, they're not better – they're not better there. They're not better there. They're, you know, they're right. not better there, or at least on paper. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, geez, we're, we're really putting a lot of stock in, in coaching improvement and scheme improvement, uh, because I just don't know if their personnel is uh, at least on paper. It right. doesn't seem to me, it doesn't seem to me that it's even equal to a year ago, let alone better. Right. I see. I'm kind of, I tend to agree with you. Now the, the, the counter to that is like, well, I mean, again, at least because we're going off of paper, like, well, those all the guys that were propping up, they won three games last year. So how good were they really? And I get that argument, I guess. Uh, But I don't know. I feel like I know a good player when I see him. It's like, do they have anybody that's better than Jojo Doman was? I don't eh, I don't know. I mean, Cam Jurgens just went in the second round and Nebraska's offensive line was terrible. Yeah. The the thing is, um, you know, seasons, every season is different and, and confidence and, um, you know, positive reinforcement, positive feedback, all those things matter. And so like this stuff, it, it plays out sequentially. You can't, you can't lay it out on May 5th or even September 5th and necessarily, you know, identify what a game in, in October, November is going to look like. And if Nebraska gets off to a good start, if, if Oklahoma comes in, and Oklahoma is, you know, is 80% of its typical self, uh, and Nebraska pulls off an upset, suddenly Nebraska thinks it's better than maybe it is, and mm-hmm. confidence builds, and, you know, like you get you get a few breaks, and, and a team looks, uh, it, it exceeds the sum of its parts, uh, where, where last year I think Nebraska, you know, was less than the sum of its parts, so uh, that's, that's the fun part. And sort of the mysterious part of evaluating this stuff is, is you can't necessarily break it down and say, this player wasn't as good as this player. This player is better than this player. Uh, because every season is a little bit different. Speaking of on paper, you know, 
It's funny how things kind of evolve and change. Like 25, 30 years ago in basketball, you had to have a – it felt like you had to have a center. You need to have a five-man that is a back-to-the-basket. You throw it into – like you had to have that. It even felt like 25, 30 years ago in football, you, you had to have a star running back. Like you, you better have a total stud at that spot. Now it kind of feels like in football, one of the non-negotiable things you have to have is a pass rusher. You better have either a pass rush or an individual menacing dude that can get after the quarterback. And Nebraska has not had that since Randy Gregory, and so we're getting close to a decade of that. And I think you could feel that in games. You could feel that void not being there for Nebraska. And O'Shawn Mathis, at least on paper, feels like he could maybe check a box that Nebraska has not had. Yeah, no, you vibing with me? Am I am I chugging the Kool Aid? What do you think? No, I totally agree. I mean, it's there are you see it, uh, you often see it, and I'm you know I'm not a, a football evaluation expert, but there are games where you especially see it. I think in in really big time games, uh, the the separators are um, they're worth seven to ten to fourteen points. You know, it's it's the ability to get off the field on third and eight. Right. It's the ability to it's the ability for a running back to break a tackle and get a critical first down. It's it's the ability of a quarterback to to make a throw, you know, a deep post that that another quarterback can't make. And and I think Nebraska just hasn't had enough of those difference makers. Uh, you know, look at last year's team. I think there was some really good personnel. Some of those guys are going to be in the NFL here in a couple of years, but there weren't there weren't enough guys on that roster, and there haven't been enough guys in the program over the last ten years who you looked at and you just said that guy is going to be the difference in a close game, right? right? And so the hope is that at at a real critical position on the field uh, in modern day football, that that Mathis can be that guy. Um, I, I don't know how many other guys there are like that on this roster. That's that's a real concern. Very. Um, and and I think you know if Mathis can give them something. I mean, Nick, let's just say there's there's 14 possessions at a football game. Uh, let let's say that he can get them off the field one time on third and ten, uh, where where otherwise a, a team might make a conversion and and go in and score three to seven points. I mean, that's that's a huge play in a football game just by getting pressure on one one hypothetical play so uh i i think it's a a really important addition for nebraska and you know if if they're lucky they can uh surround him with some other good pass rushers too last thing we're out of here there's a uh there's a new nebraska football documentary coming out day by day that i'm i'm actually going to interview the producer and director here in about like an hour and a half uh uh, about it i'm kind of amazed like First of all, I guess two-part question. A, are you are you interested in this at all? Because it's kind of amazing to think that there has not been a big documentary done on the 90s kind of dynasty. And maybe it's a little scary for people to do it because, like, I was thinking about this is it. This is maybe what the state of Nebraska is most proud of. And so if it's not done perfect or done right, it's going to be a letdown a little bit for some people. But are you interested – Seems like we know everything there is to know about that period of time, but at the same time, I don't know if it's ever been fully documented in in the right way. Not in this medium, uh, yeah. but but I will tell you, and I'm I'm not trying to be a company guy here, but but about ten years ago, the World Herald, Henry Cordes, uh, who does a lot of big projects, yep. 
he he wrote a book about the 90s era and and the detail there is just incredible i mean it's it goes into just remarkable detail of of Lawrence Phillips and Tommy Frazier and the Peter brothers and Osborne and all the, all the off the field stuff. And so I, I do think it's been documented, but it hasn't been documented in this medium and it hasn't been done. So in a way that, that all the main characters got behind uh, sort of publicly the way that they did this time. So uh, I think in some ways it will be super satisfying to see it in a visual medium all in one place uh, on the other hand, I think we'll probably watch it and say, man, I wish there was another two hours of content just like it. I wish it was, a, you know, I, I wish it was the last dance, you know, miniseries yeah. Yeah. Where, where you could that you could really go almost game by game with it. Um, so I, I'm excited about it. And yet uh, I, I think we're all going to watch it and probably walk away and feel like, man, uh, I wish there was even more of that. I know. I, you know, one of the things is I was kind of writing down questions to ask this director that I was thinking about. Like, one of the things that's always interesting to me is the juxtaposition or contrast of soft-spoken, stoic Tom Osborne with how his teams were kind of just like, they will rip your freaking face off. And, like, they usually say teams are kind of an extension of their coach or they take on the personality of their coach. Like, And while, don't get me wrong, there are elements of Tom Osborne, the execution, the details, those kinds of things that are riddled throughout the program. Like, the personality of seemingly the teams uh, with these guys are a lot different than, than Tom Osborne. I'm interested to see how those two things line up. Well, Osborne, one of Osborne's remarkable gifts – uh, is that he surrounded himself with people who who had different characteristics than he did. So, um, you know, take take Charlie McBride or Milt Teniper, for instance, and those guys brought a different skill set to a football team than than Osborne did. Um, you know, I think that was that was genius. Uh, he he uh, he didn't mind empowering Charlie McBride uh, to to light a fire under the black shirts in a way that Osborne you know, didn't, didn't have to do. It, it was a really smart use of complementary skill sets uh, that I think a, a lot of head coaches, you know, would be wise to emulate. So uh, I, I think, you know, first and foremost, his motivational talent was, was sort of, you know, the servant leader and yeah. uh, make, making people feel like, you know, they would rather, they'd rather keel over and die than disappoint him. Uh, which I think is, you know, is a really is a really important motivational skill for for coaches to to sort of lead that way. But he also did a really good job of empowering other people around him. Right. Going to be interesting to see what happens. I do like that 30 years has passed. I think sometimes like I think time gives people perspective and allows things to marinate. And I think it allows for people to be more honest to go there. Like sometimes there's this desire like, you know, what wouldn't be a I'd watch a Golden State Warriors documentary right now. I would totally, I'd be all in on it, right? But like, I think there's something that would be better about letting 20 years go by and then diving into it. Just like the last dance, like it's, it was better that time had passed. And I think the same thing can be said for this. I think it's going to be, I'm excited for it. I mean, well, and, and you know what, Nick? I'll, I'll be interested to see how it handles the last 25 years. You know, if it, if it, um, and this might be an interesting question for, for the person that you're going to interview, but um, you know, how do you handle what's happened since? Because it, it would be tempting. Well, it would be simple 
put it that way to to just sort of end it with 1997 1998 and uh you know to let to let that era stand almost timeless uh and yet i think it has gained a lot of its influence culturally on us specifically of people of our generation it has gained a lot of its um you know sort of prestige because of what's happened since you know if nebraska wins if nebraska wins a national championship in 2009 or, or even a couple Big Twelve, Big Ten titles along the way. Right. We don't we don't look at that era the same way that we do now. That's a good so, point. So, so it, it, a, a critical character or component in the story is is the struggles that Nebraska has gone through since. The other thing I'm interested too, and this is more probably like something that'll just be in the eye of the beholder if you watch the film, is I wonder if when you walk away from this this documentary, if you'll feel like that blueprint of how Nebraska did what it did is replicable today. Because isn't that kind of the crux of a lot of the discussions around here of trying to recreate that time, just do what they did in 1995, just do that. Maybe, maybe what you'll find out from this documentary is that's not possible. Like I'm curious <laughs> what that, if I, if I, how I'll walk away feeling about that. Yeah, you know, I think my perspective on that is that it's not so much that you have to find the same advantages that you had back then. I mean, it's, you know, most of those advantages are no longer attainable, but it's it's finding some advantage. You know, I guess that's the part that's been frustrating to me is it's like, uh, you know, you would think that Nebraska along the way would have stumbled on stumbled on something that gave it an edge i mean it's you know it might have been as simple as uh you know indomitian sue becomes the first uh defensive player in a decade to almost win the heisman trophy and therefore nebraska it ushers in this remarkable black shirt era where uh you know where they're producing top five defenses every year i mean it might have been something as simple as that right right? right or 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 um you know, the, the, the television stuff or, you know, the, the offensive scheme stuff. I mean, this, the old, the old greatest hits that Osborne relied on, uh, you know, the walk-on program and there's, there's old stuff, but I was surprised that Nebraska hasn't just sort of found something to establish an identity in the same way. It doesn't even have to be in the Wisconsin, Iowa way, you know, it, it might've been something entirely different. And, 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 in opposition to that, Nebraska has just sort of become this meh of, of, uh, of sort of soulless, identityless football uh, that's that's frankly not much different than what you'd see at Illinois or Minnesota. Right, right. You know, it's like they, they don't really know who they are, and what distinguished Nebraska back then was was more than any other team in the country. They totally knew who they were. Yep, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Dirk Chatlin. Man, that is you are the ultimate podcast guest, man. You just you, we turn on the mics, we just let it rip, man. This is all this never this is always just invigorates my soul, man. Thank you so much for your time. You're really generous. Thank you, sir. All right, take care, Nick. Thanks for having me. A Huda Media Production.